Well, this morning we celebrate Christmas together as, um, as a gathering. This Christmas before, this Sunday before Christmas. And for some, Christmas time is about being with family. And for others, Christmas means that it's an excuse to eat good food. Um, and still others, it means to continue with traditions that were established years ago. On the other hand, there are those who view Christmas from the lens of loneliness and unmet expectations, a reminder of conditions and circumstances they wished were different. While those may be the things which grab the attention of our hearts, they aren't the reason for Christmas. We live in a culture that increasingly doesn't understand the meaning of Christmas. I remember about 15 years ago, sitting in a local business. And in this business, we had the opportunity to get to know the two owners of this business as we frequented a lot. We liked the, the product that they provided and uh, we developed, uh, Elisa specifically developed a relationship with one of the owners. And the way that they connected was he said, you remind me of the other owner's sister. And it kind of gives you an idea of how often we were in this business. We'd frequented this business for ministry purposes and just, it was fun. It was enjoyable. Our kids were young and so they were with us. But I remember him sitting down one day. He, we'd come into the shop and we were talking with him and he looked at me and he's like, I can't believe the stuff that's going on in our culture. And he's like, I love Christmas and I love Easter, and I want to celebrate Christmas, and I want to celebrate Easter. They're just good times. And I said, what, what does Christmas and Easter mean to you? And he's like, well, it's, it's Santa, and the, and the gifts, and the traditions, and the carols, and the songs. And I remember looking at him, and I, I asked him, I said, print. what's the real meaning of Christmas to you? And he's like, I don't know what the real meaning of Christmas is. But I know that I love the tradition. I think there's a lot of us in our culture who really don't give a lot of thought to the real meaning of Christmas. For some, we may not know the real meaning of Christmas. For others, we may know what occurred on Christmas Day and why we celebrate Christmas. But beyond the birth of Christ, we don't connect it to the redemptive aspect of Christmas. And we certainly often don't connect it to the blessing of Christmas. We talk about the blessing of babies. Well, that's easy, isn't it? We see a baby, right? It's easy to see a child as a blessing. But this child was different than any other child. This son was different than any other son. And the meaning of Christmas, while there's lots of good and feel-good things around it that tug on our hearts, and pull on our hearts. 
the meaning of Christmas is found in the person of Jesus. See, Christmas is a time to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And many of you know the story, but the story isn't the end. It's the beginning of experiencing the greatest gift that you can receive as mankind, Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this passage this morning, may this Christmas be about this gift, Jesus, that keeps on giving. And may this season be about the blessing of becoming God's children through faith in Christ. So let's look at this passage together this morning. It's out of Galatians 3, verse 23, and we're going to go through chapter 4, verse 7. It's a relatively quick passage in comparison to what we've been looking at over the past few weeks, but it is the central idea of what we've been walking in together as we've been looking at this series on adopting Christmas by first looking at the adopting hope that we have through the promises fulfilled and the adopting peace that we have through God's protection from the schemes of the enemy. So let's dive in that together today. Let's go ahead and stand. We're going to be starting in verse 23 and running through verse 7. And this is what it says. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, and in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise." I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now here's the Christmas story. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would today take hold of the adoption that you've granted us through faith. Father, we see the birth of your son Jesus and we rejoice knowing that you came in flesh and dwelt among us. And we know, God, that you will be returning as well. Father, I pray that we wait with anticipation. I pray that we see the blessing of being adopted as your children. 
That God, that we might see how you use adoption both for us spiritually and God also in this life to display your mercy and your grace. Father, I pray against any work of the enemy to distract this morning, to confuse to move our hearts and minds away from you. And I ask that your spirit would lead powerfully in each of our lives, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would implant your word on our hearts, that we might be people who live by faith as your children. May we rejoice in your blessing, Lord. Lord God, I pray that you would move me out of the way and you would bring forth your word in power and we ask these things in your name amen the simplicity of this passage is found in the simple idea that the blessing of Christ's birth is found in our adoption as God's children his heirs through faith. The blessing of Christ's birth is found in our adoption as God's children, his heirs through faith. The idea of blessing tied to being heirs of Christ through faith. It's not simply that we are sons or sons and daughters, but it is that we are heirs. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at how God uses adoption as the means of fulfilling his promise, as the means of protecting against the schemes of the enemy. And we focused on this passage. We've said that Galatians 4, 4 through 5 has been the foundation for our series. And again, what it says, it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Now, simply put, Jesus came to redeem mankind. And that redemption begins through Christ's work on the cross. The fact that he was born of woman. So he was 100% God, 100% human. And we're told that he was born under the law. And the reason he was born under the law was so that he might come to fulfill the law. Ultimately, what occurs is that by Christ going to the cross, we then are able to be adopted as sons through him. Now, this is the blessing. The blessing is that through Jesus, we are adopted as sons of God through Jesus. See, one of the things I think that happens is we talk about faith, and we talk about it kind of in segments. It's a compartmentalized faith. We, we come to faith for salvation. That's one step. And then the secondary step is that we, 
we live by faith and we, we hope that by living by faith that God will do a work in us. The problem is, is his promise is central to this. We are being redeemed. We've already been redeemed through the work of the cross and he is continuing to redeem us and we are adopted as sons. Now picture this for a second. Sometimes we can feel as if God is, is out there, far away. But what he's saying here is, you are actually in his household. The, the best way to learn is to be inside the household, to be in this loving family. Here's the thing. God has given you a loving family of which he is the head. And the best part about it is, through faith, it never goes away. You're always in that household with him as your father. He's standing there, and even when you don't see it, God is working, he's instructing, he's moving. That's his promise to you as adopted sons. I remember growing up, there was a family that was close friends of ours. He eventually was our, our administrative pastor when I was in the East Bay. And we had a very close relationship. But I could never quite figure out sometimes the relationship of his children. He came to Christ later in Christ, uh, later in life, came to Christ later in life. We get that right. And he and his wife had been married before. They both had children and then they came together, were married, and they had another child. But Don had a son that, as I talked to them as a young kid, I was trying to figure it out. I would say, well, that's your brother, right? And they're like, well, that's my, that's my stepbrother. And I'm like, I don't get this. Like, I get how your two families blended together. I get that you have a child of your own. But what do you mean you have a stepson? And like, those guys are your stepsons over there too, right? Well, yes, that's true. And as we started working out, what stood out to me, it was the first time I had seen this really lived out in my life. I was probably six or seven. And Don had adopted his, the son of his first wife. And this son actually identified with Don as Don took him in as a dad. And when their marriage ended, Don was still deeply invested in this child's life, this son's life. To this day, Don is nearing his late 70s. Brian, his son, is in his mid-50s. And Brian is as close to that family as you'd ever know because he was adopted into that family you would have no idea that he had any other ties but to that family because he was encompassed into it. He was immersed into it. That's what God does to us. He immerses us in his household. It doesn't go away. He's the father that doesn't leave us. He's the father that doesn't abandon us. He is the father that is always present. And he's the father that's always working. The beauty in that is even for those that sin, which is each one of us, God is able to redeem 
the worst of our sin. And here's the beauty of it. There's no such thing as the worst of sin. All sin has one consequence, and it is death. And it is just as hard for Scotty to be saved, and Kevin to be saved, and Joy to be saved, and Margie to be saved, and Elena to be saved, and for myself to be saved. Because apart from Jesus, we are all hard-hearted. So what we see is that the Christmas birth of Jesus, this story of Christmas, is actually a story of blessing bestowed upon his people. And so what we see is that the blessing of God's adoption as his children comes through faith. And because it's through faith, we see five aspects of this blessing in this passage. The first is this. In verse 23 through 26, it says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. The first blessing is that it accomplishes what the law only revealed, our need for salvation in Christ. It accomplishes what the law only revealed, our need for salvation in Christ. See, the word for guardian simply means tutor or schoolmaster. Here's what the law did. The law was kind of this kind of protector. When the, the Jews were living under the law, all that the law could do was to tell them and reveal to them God's heart. It had no power to make them into it, to righteous people. But it showed them God's heart, and it protected them from destruction, because in knowing God's heart, there was an attempt to follow God's heart. The other way that this can be translated is the idea of a schoolmaster. The schoolmaster comes in and teaches and instructs and even disciplines. But at some point, the schoolmaster has to be removed and the child has to be set free. See, one of the things that happens here is the law could simply point out our need for Jesus. It actually shows us our sin. Romans 7, 7 through 8 says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known my sin. For I would have not known what is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Verse 13 continues, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The idea behind this is that the law actually shows us that there's absolutely no way that we can live righteously. I mean, think about this just for a second. Think about the last time that you set in motion something in your life. You're like, yeah, I'm just going to try harder at this. And uh, I'm going to set my goal. Now, sometimes we get to those goals. 
but often think about the new year. Losing weight, right? Um, going to the gym. Going even for a walk every day, right? I'm going to stop and I'm going to take in the sights and sounds of the world. I'm going to do that more, right? You can have all the best intentions, but the flesh fails. The law exposed this. It laid out these things. It said, yes, we can all agree that murder is wrong. We can all agree that adultery is wrong. We can see that putting other gods before God is wrong. And the law, too, exposed our hearts. Paul saying that while I couldn't see what was going on outside because of my self-righteousness, inwardly I could see that I coveted, which showed me that I was completely self-righteous. The law actually shows us our sin, and it shows us our powerlessness to it, our need for the Messiah. Martin Luther put it this way. He says, when the child has grown, he doesn't do away with the discipline and lessons he gained from the tutor, but he also doesn't live under the tutor any longer. This is our relation to the law of God. We learn from it. We remember our lessons from it, but we don't live under the law. The simile of the schoolmaster is striking. Schoolmasters are indispensable. But show me a pupil who loves his schoolmaster. The law was an act of bondage because it was being done in the power of the flesh. It pointed to the need for someone else to be our righteousness. And that was the promised Messiah that God had promised to his people. Romans 10, 1 through 4 says, Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is our freedom. Verse 8 through 10 continues, But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Faith in Christ is the means of our righteousness. Faith in Christ is the means of our salvation. So secondly here then, the first being the blessing of the accomplished work of salvation is that it identifies us with Christ as heirs of the promise. Our adoption identifies us with Christ as heirs of the promise. In verse 27, it says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now this particular passage has been misused and abused. This passage is dealing with our idea that we are one in Christ, that our identity is found and shaped by Jesus. You see, salvation had come to the Jews first. And there were still Jews who believed that you had to 
walk in the law and then also put on faith. We see that within religions today. As much as God has used the Catholic Church to bring people to Jesus, the truth is, is that is very much what they walk in. Faith plus tradition. God has an amazing way of using different forms of teaching to lead us to the Lord, doesn't he? But that's only because of his grace. Grace comes through faith alone. The grace lived out, being worked out in our lives, is through faith alone. And the blessing of that is that we're identified with Jesus. It does not matter our background, our race, our gender, or anything. Faith in Jesus leads to salvation. Salvation is not predicated on my background. You may say, I've done the worst things in the world. Yeah, you may know that. And I too know that in my heart, I've done the worst things in the world. You ever wonder what it would look like if somebody cut you open and instead of seeing your physical heart, they saw your soul? Boy, it's dirty, isn't it? And yet it's amazing how God cleanses it, isn't it? That he makes it pure and right. Because God wants our heart. He wants our soul. This idea of identity in Jesus, that we are found as his children, is vital. Romans 4, verses 16 through 18 says, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring. The promises that were given to Abraham, we too receive through faith. The promise of a savior, of Messiah, of life with him eternally, we receive through faith, not based upon anything but Jesus. This passage is not saying that there's no distinction. It's not adopting the culture of today, which is saying that everything's androgynous. What it is saying is, is that when you come to identify, you identify with Christ. Our human condition looks to identify with something. Think about your identity for a moment. How would you describe yourself? What's the first thing that you would describe yourself to others? What was that? Oh, Paul. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the truth is, is that for some of us, we identify very quickly with things that we can see right off the bat. We identify as dads or moms or husbands or wives or co-workers or workers we allow our jobs to help see that and yet christ says that our identity is in him 
And it is because our identity is in him that we then are able to experience his promise. That's why when we put our identity in other things, we lose that sense of peace and hope. It's nothing eternal. And in the midst of that, we actually miss experiencing the blessing of the promise that God has provided. But when we find our identity in Christ, we experience the fullness of that promise. For those who have put their faith in Jesus, their identity is in Jesus. If your faith and hope is in something else, know that your identity is there as well. Our culture speaks a ton about identity. We spoke about identity politics. We have 27 genders to deal with today. And more. We see ourselves in terms of heterosexual, homosexual, pansexual. Understand that this is a distraction by the enemy for your destruction. The only identity that matters is in Jesus, and he's offered you the blessing of Christ through faith. And that means that the things that seem so natural to us, the sin that wants to rise up and overtake our life is just that, sin. And when we put our identity in Jesus, our lives are about glorifying him and experiencing the hope of his promise. The third blessing that comes is that it frees us from the bondage and immature belief of getting our just desserts. Desserts. Frees us from the bondage and immature belief of getting our just desserts. Now, I used the word desserts here because it's Christmas. And it reminds us of the desserts. Now, for some of us that are a little bit older, that phrase was common. I understand that my own children have probably never heard that phrase. Simply put, it frees us from the bondage and immature belief that we get what we deserve. That we actually get what we're owed. You see, in verse 1 through 3, it says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What he's talking about here is simply this. That the elementary principles of the world is that we just do right and therefore we should be approved that we earn our salvation, that it doesn't seem fair that somebody can walk in faith and that Kellen's done far worse than I've done in my life and he gets to inherit the same promise, wrong. That's not the way we live life. It's not the way we live life, but it is the way that God does. God's mercy 
is placed upon who he chooses to show his mercy. And his loving kindness is everlasting. The very fact that we've been granted grace means that we did not get what we deserve. We deserve death for our sin. We did nothing to make ourselves right before God. Jesus did it all, and all we have to do is place our faith in Jesus. Ever been there before where you've been frustrated with God? And you've looked at God and you've said, God, I'm doing, I've done this for you. I've done what your word says, and it's still not happening. Guess what? God's telling you that right then you're in the midst of a tantrum. He's telling you that your belief is not in the faith of God giving us what we don't deserve. But it's seeing that you believe that your actions are what make you deserving before the Lord. God has called us to bear fruit of our salvation. But God's salvation is not granted to you because of what you've done. And God's blessing is not poured out upon you because of what you've done. It is simply poured out upon you because of what he has done and his empowerment in you to walk in obedience. One of the areas that God has been working in my life over the last few years is to understand his goodness. Delighting in him. For much of my life, life was about goals and accomplishments. Growing up, it was about academics and it was about sports. And these are good things. But subtly, it moved my mindset. And that mindset became one of always seeking to accomplish the next thing. And as God worked and moved in my heart, what I began to see was that much in my life was seen through a lens of being good enough. And what I realized was there was an idolatry that was there. And that idolatry was self, that if I just could do this, then this would happen. If this was just going on in my life, this would happen. And if I could just make this happen, then all would be good. Over the last five years, six years, God stripped me of that. A body that is broken. An endurance which diminishes. A gift that requires me every day to say, God, you are my sufficiency. And I don't get what I deserve. And that's your grace. A grace that is sustaining. And oh, it is so good to live in the peace of his goodness. 
rather than in the work of the flesh. Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That is the promise to those who have put their faith in Jesus. Apart from Jesus, guess what? Your sins have not been removed as far as east from the west. And you're under the wrath of God. But for those who put their faith in Jesus, they are under his loving mercy as displayed through his grace. The fourth blessing is that it grants the Holy Spirit to dwell in your heart, enabling you to confidently cling to the Father. Now, this verse, it says, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, the Greek actually brings this out, and there is this idea of daddy with Abba, Father. But there is more to this. It's not like a little infant crying to a father who misses and sees his dad going, you're my dad and that's, that's my comfort. What this is saying here is, this is a cry, Abba, Father, my daddy, I need you, that's it. Because I have nothing apart from you. It is the idea of clinging onto, holding, grabbing hold of. It is a child who in the midst of distress is running up and clinging to his parents. Holding on tight. Going, Daddy, hold me tight. That's what the Spirit does for us. The Spirit works in our heart to say, cling to Jesus. But not only cling to him, I'm going to allow you to cling to him. I'm going to strengthen you to cling to him. I'm going to make you the one that holds on when you don't want to. It is that our confidence then becomes in Jesus because of the work of the Spirit. And so the Spirit dwells within us and enables us to confidently hold to Christ that we might know that we are his. It's when we see his work in our life that we become confident in. It's when we cling to Christ in situations that we would have never done it before that we know that God is real and true. And more than that, that we know that we are his children. Romans 8, 13 through 17 says, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. What this says is this life is going to be hard. But your peace and your joy and your hope does not disappear because you are clinging to Christ and you are clinging to the Father. What a blessing, isn't it? 
a blessing that you have the Spirit of God that dwells within you? That actually causes you to cling to the Father when you don't even want to? But the moment you do, you see that there's no other place you'd rather be. The Spirit is who enables us to hold tight. And then finally, the final blessing of being adopted as sons is that it shares immediately in the riches and future of your inheritance found in Christ. Here's the beauty. This is not an inheritance that you wait on until somebody else dies. You're not waiting for the passing of time to get the riches that will be poured out through inheritance of some family member. Have you ever thought about that? That's kind of a weird thing. I remember when I was going through the heart stuff and they came back and they said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to actually, uh, we need to... In, we need to actually use real tissue on you. And so we're going to use a homograft. And I remember looking at the surgeon in the room and I said, a homograft? You mean like a cadaver? He's like, yeah. And I, I looked at him and I said, well, this is weird. And I, I really was conflicted in the moment. And I said, so are you telling me that I'm waiting for somebody to die so that I can live? And he looked and he, he kind of laughed and he chuckled for a minute. He goes, well, kind of. He goes, I have a few in the freezer in the back. No joke. But I remember wrestling with that afterwards. What an interesting blessing, right? Well, here's the thing. Jesus already died. But he rose again. And we inherit his blessing today. We don't have to wait until tomorrow. All of his promises are available to us today as heirs. Not just sons, but as heirs. Not just somebody that's been brought into the family that's the, the kind of person that you're like, I don't really like that guy. I'm not giving him much. Right? Jesus has given all of what he's given to his heirs, he's given to you as well as an heir. He didn't give you just a small portion. He gave you every portion that he gave to others. And the beauty as well is that not only do you have his promises to cling to and hold to today, but you have a future promise, a future inheritance when Christ returns, the second advent. When he comes again to restore his people and set up a kingdom for him. We can share immediately in those riches. See, Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 12 says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he was, has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. It begins today. It begins the day that you come to Jesus 
And God desires his church, not a nation, to be the place that displays his glory. It is through those who have placed their faith in Jesus that his glory is to be made known. And when we live as a rich people, not rich in wealth, maybe some are, but we live rich in the promises of God, Christ's light shines through us, but then Christ's light fills us. You see the blessing that God has given through adoption? It's not just an event where we're brought into a family, but we are brought into a family where we are identified with the Father, where the promises that He's given to His children apply to all of His children. That we don't get what we deserve. But we are granted his Holy Spirit so that we might cling to him. And the riches of his promises begin today and yesterday. And the day that we gave our life to Christ through repentance and faith. This inheritance is not something that is waited for. It's already been granted. And my hope for us this Christmas season is that we would live as adopted sons, fully identifying with Jesus as his sons and daughters, as his church. And the world might see us as people who are rich, rich from the promises of God, not from the elemental principles of the world. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your gospel. That through faith, you have granted us life. You have granted us relationship with you. And God, the greatest inheritance that we have is that there will be a day that you return for us where we get to stand before you and be with you eternally. All stemming from the birth of Jesus. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you for loving when we were so undeserving. We rejoice as your children, Lord. And may we see being a child of you is a blessing that continues to keep on giving. And we ask this in your name. Amen.